Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Juanced, The show that challenges popular conceptions, thinks critically, examines independently, and most of all, seeks nuance. Each episode features a different guest. We'll dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, tech, culture, and more connected to Israel and the Jewish world. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land, and welcome to Juanced, the show that brings you a nuanced exploration of Israel, the Jewish world, and beyond. I'm Benny Shoulder. I'm Dan Pfefferman. We are thrilled to be here with another episode of Juanced. Before we get going, I'd like to give a shout out to our audience watching us today on Facebook Live. Thanks for tuning in. And for those of you listening on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and all the other podcast platforms, know that there's a live video version of the podcast, which you can check out weekly, available here on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Podcast. Check it out when we record or watch all our episodes on our YouTube channel, Juwan's Podcast, as well as our website, www.juwan's.com. Also, make sure you are following us on Instagram. We are at Juwanced and on Twitter at Juwanced Podcast for all the updates. And as always, make sure to subscribe to Juwanced on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcast. And there are rumors out there. I've decoded them from multiple languages that say it makes a difference if you leave a five-star review. So please go ahead and do that. All right. Dan, episode, episode 52. 52. All right. Does that mean we have done a year's worth of episodes? That means that if you're paying attention, we've been doing over a year's worth of episodes because (laughs) there were a couple of bonus episodes thrown in the mix. But this is officially, if you're counting uh, weekly, uh, a one year of Juanced. And we're excited to be back with some of uh, with one of our our original guests on the show, uh, Dr. David Mannheim, who Dan will introduce shortly. Uh, But I got to say, I'm coming at the tail end here of a a really nice time spent in the U.S. Uh, Actually speaking to you uh, from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I know Dan is is set to go out on a a, a sort of a work trip uh, in two days. Right, Dan? Yeah, but but let's hear about your trip first and your experiences and then I'll about my uh, upcoming adventure well i could just say that it's it's really really good to be out of uh you know out, out of the house after so long spent working from home and being at home and kind of getting a change of scenery uh and it's always nice when you're in a place where it's you know a little bit cooler than than at home and and greener uh you know you know how it is dan <laughs> but uh we, we, it's been nice we've been spending some good time with family we've been spending good time with friends a lot of good meals a lot of good uh good fun um but you know like all good things it's going to come to an end so in a week uh, I'll, I'll be back home and uh yeah and we've missed you good. here but as you come back home i'm getting on a plane and going to the states cool. um i'm going for just over two weeks i'm bringing uh, the first ever as far as i know and i'm, I'm gonna bill it this way because it sounds better first ever delegation of uh, emiratis and israelis and we have a saudi joining us um, for my new job with Sharaka, the Gulf Israel Center for Social Entrepreneurship. Um, Sharaka means partnership in Arabic. So we are going to spread the word. Uh, we have a new narrative, a new story, a positive story about the Middle East that we can work together. Uh, we're flipping the script. Um, so we will be heading out to New York, Boston, and Atlanta. And then I will be joining my wife and kids 
uh, in Omaha, Nebraska, where we'll hang out with the in-laws and her siblings and all that stuff. So uh, good times. definitely looking forward to that. But we've got some uh, guests with us today. We've got here Dr. Rami Shanani, who's sitting in the studio in Rehovot. And we've got Dr. David Mannheim, who would have been in the studio, but uh, but he's not. And uh, like I like I said earlier, Dan, D- D- David Mannheim was guest number six, episode right. number six, way back when, sometime last year at the beginning of the pandemic, when we were all kind of uh, thinking that it was going to be the end of the world. And David kind of, you know, I think he was, I don't know, he was he was, he was a little bit, uh, he relaxed me. He calmly looked me in the eyes and he said, the world will keep on spinning and it'll be okay. Uh, and, and indeed it has. Uh, Dan, why don't you introduce David officially for people that aren't uh, that aren't as familiar as we are? Gladly. So we have back back with us, like you said, one of the originals, Dr. David Mannheim, postdoctoral researcher at the University of Haifa's Health and Risk Communication Research Center. We hope this is all accurate, by the way, um, from the last time because we're just rereading your bio. Um, works with universities, NGOs in the UK and US, and uh, focuses on modeling test and trace programs for the UK, policy options for COVID-19 in the US and internationally. And before that, he worked on understanding and, mit- understanding and mitigating global catastrophic biological risks, including work on bioweapons, natural pandemics, and other disasters with groups at the University of Oxford, such as at the Future of Humanity Institute, which was one of the coolest things we've ever discussed on the show, and other various nonprofits. He has a PhD in public policy and decision theory from the RAND Corporation and has worked on uh, various issues informing policy decision-making from infectious diseases such as COVID to modeling risks for earthquakes and other natural disasters. Welcome back, David. And we also have with us Dr. Rami Shanani, who happens to be a friend and a neighbor, and uh, and we go to the same shul together, but he is a uh, a brilliant and uh, interesting, I know, I know, I know, surprised you, uh, physician, family doctor here in uh, Rehovot, uh, studied at the Hebrew University Medical Center, and everything that David does, how we say, from 30,000 feet, Rami does on the ground, working, dealing with uh, Israel's public health system for the Leumit um, how, HMO. HMO, I guess that's how you'd say it in English, the Leumit HMO, and in addition to working as a doctor and having dealt with COVID for the past year and a half. Uh, He's also a major in the IDF reserves where he serves as a commander of a medical unit and is active in civic and communal leadership roles. So welcome both of you to Juanst. Welcome to you. Benny, why don't you kick us off? So I I got a little bit of uh, feedback noise in the back. You'll have to excuse that. I think they're building a new building down here. Uh, The the biggest thing that I think that has happened to me over the course of the past past month is that I've left the, the state of Israel and traveled to another country. And, um, you know, obviously, uh, that's, you know, a, a big thing after not having been around any, you know, out of Israel in a year and a half, but also you get to experience how people in different parts of the world are experiencing this pandemic and to hear their perspectives and to understand more and to just see with your own eyes how, uh, how it is to be going through this in a different place. Uh, and David, I don't know, or, or Rami, I don't know if you've had time to, uh, to be in the U.S. in the past year and a half, uh, but it is quite different than uh than in in israel uh and i think that i i would try to think before the show how i could explain it because it's not it's not as easy as just saying the americans are idiots they're traveling you know they're handling things differently because it's you know it's, it's not good to generalize 300 million people but what but i can say is that <laughs> i'm not saying that uh but but what i am saying is that 
you know, it, it seems that there was a great deal of politicization of the pandemic here in the United States, especially during the Trump administration. And that if you were on the liberal side of things, you were extraordinarily cautious. And if you were on the conservative side of things, you were less so. Um, and it seems that once the uh, administration changed and once you had a lot of people who were vaccinated, people slowly were able to, even if they were on the more cautious side, it was like a switch flipped in their head. Uh, whether or not that's accurate, medically speaking or scientifically speaking, it, it, it's, it just seems that if, if you were vaccinated, you were cool. And that was the attitude about it. And it wasn't necessarily that you were cool that you weren't going to get COVID. It was cool that if you were going to get COVID, you weren't going to die from COVID. And therefore, we're going to treat this like any other sort of respiratory thing. And if you're not going to die for it, and if you know, you're going to be okay, and if the majority of people are vaccinated, let's go back to live our lives and go to restaurants and go out and, and, and play with each other and meet with each other and, and so on and so forth. And that seems to be the attitude here. You don't see a lot of... Uh, you don't hear the naysayers that used to be out there in the past shaming people about you know, wearing masks or not wearing masks or so on and so forth. And you don't experience uh, a lot of closures and you don't experience a panic in the press about uh, every day counting the amount of COVID cases that there are or how many people are in the hospital or you know, the narrative seems to have shifted. So I'm wondering where we are uh, in Israel compared to that because there seems to be a sort of a, uh, a difference between how the, the nation and the body politic and the psychology of, of, of the Israeli handles COVID differently from that of the American. And are the Americans, uh, are the Americans right? Are the Americans wrong? And, and where are we with the virus? And I know that there's a lot to unpack there, but I kind of want to sort of use that as the intro because a lot of our, our listeners are coming from the United States and they might not understand the dynamics in Israel, and I'm coming from Israel, and I didn't understand the dynamics in the U.S. when I got here. So that's that's the base of the context here. So maybe Rami, let's kick it over to you first of all, just uh, from an on-the-ground perspective of uh, dealing with it here, dealing with the public. Um, how do we deal with it here? What have you seen, and kind of where are we at this point in time with with COVID? Yeah. Okay. Um, I think that uh, something to begin with. Uh, maybe it's, um, it's a good idea to describe a little bit the way that the Israeli medical system works. Because uh, the Israeli medical system, uh, it's a kind of a national medical system. Every Israeli is, uh, is insured by the government. Uh, it's obligatory. There are like uh, four HMOs that are subcontractors of the government to supply the medical uh, service. And, uh, and uh, I mean... We have we have all all around the country spread around. We have clinics that are a for a primary medicine and secondary medicine, and we have uh, spread around also uh, some medical centers, hospitals. Some of them are very very good in the in the I can say even the in the Ivy League of um, medical system uh, medical centers in the states, and some of them are more. Uh, more uh, regional, but they are still in a good, good medical level. Um, now, um, as, as a country that all the time also prepare itself for, um, I can call it the security events, uh, Israel all the time was like uh, on, 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 the, on the spot, uh, um, preparing for, for a medical, for biological event, for a chemical event. Uh, but it was all the time with a kind of an attitude that it's something that it's between us and our Arab neighbors and always will be able to reach 
out for our great friend, for example, United States, mm. to help us in a case of, of a pandemic or a local pandemic. Yeah, I don't know if people know, but we used to, until, gosh, when, when I made Aliyah, when I moved here in 2015, we were still getting gas masks, okay? So people outside of Israel, have, we still, I mean, we still have them, right? We still have them, but I don't have one for my youngest kid, for example, right? So yeah, what you're saying is, I mean, we used to Maybe you have should. this ethos <laughs> of national so, preparedness. So it starts right? from, the, from the local citizen and it's reached to the, to the biggest uh, center and, uh, and system altogether. In Israel, at least once a year, there was a kind of a drill that all the, all the parts of the system were taking care of, uh, taking uh, part of uh, with, you know, uh, hospitals, uh, uh, fireworks, uh, uh, police departments, every, I mean, all the, all the parts of the system were um, practicing um, biological event. Uh, and one of the one of the things that was surprising for me that was that uh, when it happened, they didn't really operate it according to the according to the to the drill according to the plan. Mm. Uh, usually, the plan says, "Okay, we have you know the best uh, the best trained people are in the army, and in such a case that it's a kind of a national disaster, let's say earthquake, so the army is taking care of the whole thing." is like the envelope uh, uh, operational uh, system and all the other, all the other uh, systems are like kind of a joining venture together with the army. And here as somewhere at the middle of the way, uh, the health ministry took over mm -hmm. and it was quite surprising. And I think that it caused quite a lot of uh, mess at the beginning because really, uh, the health ministry wasn't trained enough to be a manager, a case manager for such a big event. And, uh, and the army was very frustrated that they're not operating them. And uh, the citizens were kind of uh, mixed up what's going on. I mean, they got all the time different, uh, different uh, messages from different uh, uh, people that were in the position. So that was the very, very beginning. Um, but since, since we have a kind of an organized medical, uh, national-wise organized system, so it's mo it was much easier to, uh, to start to set up the systems all around. And uh, um, the first thing that, uh, that we done was that they, uh, they divided between the very severe patients that needed hospitalization all, and all the others that were able to stay at home. All the people that uh, stayed at home were... Uh, I mean, the, the 4-HMOs were in charge of them and they, uh, they were, they were uh, being followed up by, by their personal doctors or by special teams that, they, that the HMOs created. And um, as long as they were fine after, uh, after a few days, that, that, that was also something that was changed through the time when all the, you know, the, the, the World Health Organization was learning also about the whole, uh, the whole story. So at the beginning, we needed to, to have like two uh, PCRs negative before you were telling a person that he's not infective. And nowadays we are waiting at 10 days. And if you are symptom free, you are, you are free to go. Uh, so things were changed all through the, through the time. Um, and and you, I think think we, you think we more or less reached a place where we're managing it effectively now? Um, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example, okay? Now we are in the fourth wave. 
And uh, the fourth wave started somewhere like a month ago. Right. We were, um, I'm, I'm also part of the, part of uh, my HMO uh, um, and follow-up uh, center for, for those uh, patients that are staying at home. And we reached a point that we, we had like, uh, like dozens of uh, patients that were still active. And then in, uh, in two or three weeks, it's like a boom. We are, nowadays we have, uh, I think, uh, around six to 700 uh, active patients right, right now at home. But uh, our, our, our control system, it's much, much, way, much, much more organized. Uh, I'm, I know each of those patients, what is his condition? I can, I can already mark him a few days in advance if he's going to be released in a few days and get you know, his, his, his uh, free pass back to civilization, or he'll have to stay at home. I can, uh, I can send medical teams for those that are starting to get worse and to send them also to hospitals. So as if, if, if I'm looking from my point of view, from the, from the, from the community of system, we are pretty nice organized and we are on it. David, you wanna you wanna take us on the global level? Yeah. Um, so I, I, there are a couple of of key points. Um, the first one is um, there's a tremendous gap between the developed world um, that mostly has access to vaccines. Um, certainly, you know, the U.S., the U.K., Israel, um, to a somewhat lesser extent, the rest of the EU. Um, you know, other countries are having more or less problems with the vaccine rollout, but as they get that done, um, I think the critical thing that changes is the disease is less serious. Um, you know, people with uh, the vaccine are less likely to get COVID. They're also, um, the cases are much less serious and kind of consequently, or, or even more so, they're less likely to die of it. Um, we also have a pandemic in the rest of the world. Um, it, it's not, it's, it's hard to control a pandemic. As we know, we, we definitely saw this. It's really hard to get everybody to stay home. It's even harder in countries that don't have um, kind of the first world amenities. And, um, you know, it was, it was relatively easy to stay at home when you could get your groceries delivered um, and work remotely. Um, a lot of, countries in the world, that's not a thing that can happen. Um, so the rest of the world is still really struggling with, uh, with, with COVID. It's, it's a very, very serious thing still. Um, and until things get more under control, that will, you know, until we, we need 16 billion doses of vaccine to, to get everybody in the world. Um, that, that's a lot. Um, we're slowly getting there, uh, you know, a little bit too slowly, but but fine, you know, that's, that's uh, kind of the, the ongoing state of things. Um, as the vaccines are available, um, we start seeing the key dynamic shift. And this is happening to some extent in Israel, to a much greater extent in the US, um, which is vaccine hesitancy and people just not, kind of, I think in Israel especially, because of the way that it was done um, by age, um, younger people, mostly got vaccinated, but there's a fairly large contingent that just kind of said, oh, well, things are under control. I don't need to bother. Um, as, as case counts started going back up, a lot of them have 
change their mind, but, but there's still, there's a, there's a contingent of people that aren't interested in getting vaccinated. Um, in the US, obviously, I think the key difference, and, and this relates to what, um, what was said uh, by Dr. Shanani before, but I think um, there's a big difference between uh, things being political and politically charged, which they certainly are in Israel. Nobody, nobody will say that Israel does not have a um, very politically charged and divisive um, society, but um, that doesn't mean that everything has been politicized. Um, it doesn't mean that people's um, viewpoint about COVID depends on who they voted for in the last election. Um, you know, certainly not to the extent that it is definitely the case in, in the US. Um, so I think that um, the, the US is still struggling now and, and people are treating it much less seriously. And there's a view that I think is, is reasonable if unfortunate that among people who are vaccinated that um, if you're not vaccinated and you get sick, that's your problem. Um, and there's a kind of view that among people who aren't vaccinated that it's just not that serious and most people, um, especially younger people, don't get that sick um, and very few die. And that's somewhat true, um, though you know, 50 people died yesterday in the US from COVID. Um, and that's not, uh, I, had, I had a friend who was saying, you, know, you could measure the number of COVID deaths at one point in, um, uh, in, in September 11th uh, size events every day. There was a time when that's, right. that's the level of what was happening. Um, and he said it was, it was great to see it get down to the level where it was only um, a passenger airline full of people dying every day. But that was still oh. horrific. And um, 50, 50 is, is much, much better. And it's still 50 people dead. Um, I think there's a big difference. The, the, another big difference between Israel and the U.S. is um, kind of in, in economics and public policy, we talk about the value of a statistical life. Like how much money is it worth to spend to on average statistically save one more person? Um, and kind of at some point you have to say like, we could set the speed limit in, you know, on the streets to, uh, you know, 10 kilometers an hour, nobody would ever die in a car accident. It would be great. And it would take you, you know, instead of taking an hour to get to work, it would take you three. Um, you know, there, there's a trade-off. We, we can't, you know, we can't make everything completely safe. Um, I think that there's a really big difference in the kind of, in people's view in Israel about what it means for somebody to die of a preventable disease, for somebody to die in a traffic accident, for some, like the, the, the country is, has a very different view. And I think that that leads to how seriously they're treating COVID now, even after um, on an objective level, um, the risk is, is thankfully much, much, not zero, but much, much lower. Um, so I, th I think Look, that's the, I, I, kind of the current state of things. You kind of you kind of teed it up, but I, I I'm I'm curious, and I can pose this to both of you. There is a very big difference into how each respective society is dealing with the virus in terms of how it imposes restrictions or, or 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 builds or or enacts policies and regulations that are meant to protect public health uh, at this stage of the virus. 
And it seems that at least in terms of what you read in the press or, or the overall feeling of things, you know, it's in Israel, it's very, you very quickly jump into a place of, are they going to lock down? Are we, are we nearing a lockdown? Is that something that's on the, that's on the uh, agenda of something we can expect to see, you know, in, in the, in the near future. Uh, and, you know, without trying to simplify things too much, I think that in Israel, there's sometimes an attitude in terms of, in terms of government policy or in terms of the government itself, that the government kind of takes the role of like the mom and dad. And we expect you to step in and tell us how we should be behaving and we'll, and we'll do what, you know, whatever you say. Whereas here in the United States, the government kind of says, we've given you these tools and we've given you this knowledge and the healthcare system is, is managing uh, by and large. So therefore, you know, exercise good judgment and live your lives. Uh, and we hope that you prosper. And, and you can kind of see that play out in terms of where Israel might be right now at this juncture and where the U.S. is at this juncture. Whereas in the U.S., uh, you know, and, and unfortunately, like you said before, a lot of this does get down to where people are saying, well, I'm vaccinated. So if you're not and you get sick, that's your problem. You know, airports are packed. Restaurants are packed. People are going out living their lives. There is no green passport system. There is no restriction in terms of who's who's you know, leaving or entering the country so much. Um, and and you could really be somewhere and, and, and say, you know, it's very hard for me to see that there even is COVID except for a couple of people walking by that might have masks and maybe they're immunocompromised or maybe they're just very, uh, you know, cautious about it or whatnot. Of course, there's the, the, the economic impacts. You see a lot of cities that are kind of, you know, the urban core has been has been decimated by by COVID or people aren't showing up to work in the offices anymore in a downtown area and what that does to a city. But we'll put that aside. Uh, and then in Israel, it seems like, you know, every day you open the paper and it's doom and gloom, you know, what's going to be, what's going to be. And I'm curious if where Israel's approach is, take psychology out for a second. Is the approach in Israel better or worse or, or more accurate, I should say, to where we are at this stage of the pandemic? Or is it um, more reflecting of the human psychology of Israelis? I'll throw in just another question before we hand it over to you guys. Um, on top of that, Israel, America, are there, and we can bring in other countries' approaches, and if they've, you know, nailed it, you know, better on the head. So I don't know if you want to jump in. Okay. Uh, your thoughts on I'll it. Try, I'll try to give a to sense of my, my thoughts. Um, first of all, you know, forget that uh, United States has a very big neighbor from the north, and they have also a national medical system, one, Medicare, and they didn't did so well during the pandemic. Uh, but if you look at their approach, it's... For the geographically challenged, he's referring to Canada. <laughs> <laughs> and um, if, you, if you look at their approach, it's... it's um, more similar to Israel than, than the States. They were very much fatherhooding the, the citizens. And, uh, and I, I'm not sure that still in Toronto, there is a kind of, uh, a kind of uh, um, uh, lockdown, but, but they have a lot of risk, risk, restrictions till, till now. And they, and they didn't, we did well also with uh, restraining the, the uh, pandemic. This is, uh, we're talking about something new, something that really we, we didn't have an experience with um, for the last, uh, for sure, for, say, for the last few centuries, 
Uh, some will say that the uh, last pandemic that you can compare it to, it's the Spanish flu from uh, the beginning of the last century. And uh, you can't really compare it because we weren't a global village and, and uh, we didn't have any means of uh, treating that uh, we can do today. So I don't know if you can, you can compare it. Uh, and the second thing is that um, we have a lot of uh, leaders, governments, that uh, are pretty much afraid to uh, to take a stand. They they are letting they are letting uh, uh, experts. You know, I'm I'm enjoying for a year. I'm enjoying uh, looking at uh, uh, the TV shows to see so many experts know exactly what's going to happen and how to take care of uh, this pandemic and. And I'm getting it, you know, from from the experts to my uh, uh, to to my patients that are also becoming like an expert. And I got only a few days ago, uh, like a list of uh, of five different vitamins or supplements. Uh, uh, what should I take uh, to make my symptoms shorten? I mean, meanwhile we don't have. Do, do any of those work? Um, <laughs> We we had a guest who told us that zinc, but only specific kind. That of was zinc. one of that was one yeah. one, one it was one of the supplements. As a matter of fact, I saw few hospitals in Israel that use zinc uh, at least for a, for a certain time of the of the of the, you know of the disease. Uh, people are learning. Uh, um, people are learning about protocols how to take care of patients. And you know what? If I'm mentioning it, um, this is something that I'm thinking in the past few months. I. I think that um, that the leadership it's right now because there is a vaccine became kind of uh, dedicated now only for vaccine go and vaccine you so everybody should vaccinated themselves and that's going to be like the miracle cure but it's not a miracle cure as long as you are global village and that's what happened for example in Israel so we got vaccinated most of the population and we, we had a, a, a great honeymoon. And and then uh, another variant of the uh, of the virus came, and we are suffering from from another another wave. Yes, maybe it's little, maybe it's uh, it's milder than the than, than the the waves that we saw before. But it's going to happen because as long as we have Brazil and South Africa and India, that the pandemic there is 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 like spreading like like, like wildfire. Fire, yeah. So we are going to have some more variants, and I think that. We need to add to our to our uh, uh, look for and discussions of creating uh, new uh, um, new protocols of taking care of patients, new uh, new drugs that uh, that are as much as, as a matter of fact, I know that there are few drugs that are at very very advanced stage of development and that they show very very uh, interesting results. So I guess that at the very end. When uh, when you are going to be, for example, Prime Minister Bennett, or you are going to be uh, uh, a, a President Biden, and you'll know that you have this kind of protocol that 50, 60 percent of those that are right now ventilated, I can cure them and I can save them from from death, and I can save also my medical system from being blocked by these pay people. Yeah, probably we are going to see a, a very different approach and a very different behavior. In the national and the global wise uh, matter. So I want to kind of first first address that last point and then get back to something Denny said. So the, sure. the, th the thing I want to say is, um, you know, 
zinc, vitamin D, vitamin E. There, there are clearly studies that show weekly that there is some level of effect. Now, I want to clarify because I think the, the statistics and the kind of substantive piece here is, is hard to understand. If you give 50 people a drug and 50 people don't get it, and 25 of the people um, who get the drug recover and, you know, and, uh, you know, 30 of the people who don't, you know, uh, who don't get the drug don't, don't recover. And so you, okay, so like it's five more. And there's some indication that it's doing something. And, and that's what we, like, we have evidence like that. There's a little bit, it's a little bit better if you have these things. Um, but maybe if we, you know, quadrupled or quintupled the number of people, you'd notice that this is statistical noise. And even if it's not statistical noise, these aren't miracle cures. Vitamin D and vitamin E and zinc are not going to change it from, well, you would have died, but now you walk out of the hospital in a day and you're fine. Like th that's just not, you know, th that's not how any of these things are going to work. Um, the, some of the medicines are a little bit more like that, but none of them are miracle cures either. We don't, nobody's, nobody's talking about drugs that you give somebody on day two of COVID and they, you know, stand up the next day and their lungs don't need time to recover. And like, that's not something that, that we have. It's not something that we're looking at. It would be tremendously different if we had something that changed, you know, that, that, that made it 50% less bad. Um, you know, th there are definitely things that have the potential to do that, but what we have now is not like that. Um, and that's been true the whole time. You know, we had lots of discussions about lots of different drugs about what they would and wouldn't do. All of them have been kind of marginal in terms of how much they do. Um, so I, I just, I want to kind of throw that out as a caution for people who are like, oh, well, I'm going to do this and it'll be fine. Um, there's one thing that we have, of course, that does function as a miracle cure. And that, that's the vaccine. Like we got incredibly lucky. People were really concerned that it would take forever to get a vaccine and we didn't know how effective it would be. And we got really, really lucky that the vaccines are all fantastic compared to what we thought was going to happen. And we got them much faster. And they give um, me really good so stuff. That, that's on the, David. Yes. Yeah. Um, the masks, masks for those who are have listening, a really, really face. strong. <laughs> yeah. Mask, masks have a strong protective effect. They're not perfect, but yeah, they're, they're about as, they're about as much as you can do. And I think that this is um, one of the places here. where, yes, as right. It, as, you don't get two people are, not, uh, are having masks. So it's not only that you are protecting yourself, you're protecting the other yeah. to get the, the, the virus that you are carrying. I remember last yeah. year on uh, Rosh Hashanah when we were having services and I had a scare that I had COVID. I actually went to you, uh, Rami, and you, you, you know, first of all, I went and got tested, but, um, but you said, you know, if I'm wearing my mask and other people are wearing their masks and on top of all that we're outside, the chances of spreading COVID or catching COVID are, are literally next to nothing. Uh, that, that was very uh, comforting. Um, to, you know, calm, yeah. certainly calmed me down as I had to be around hundreds of people, although outside for uh, for the high holidays uh, last year. Um, David, you mentioned being, something. Being outdoors is also. David, you mentioned something that you were going to go back to something yeah. that I had said. Maybe it was about the context of yeah. uh, how um, the societies are handling the pandem pandemic relative to this stage right. of the pandemic. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I, I think 
you, you asked, you know, who's handling it correctly. And I think the, um, the, the point that you made about what people expect of their governments is critical. Um, you know, or, or is the government a parent that tells you what to do? Um, you know, I, I have um, young children. Um, I know Dan has older kids. Um, there's a big difference in how you treat, um, you know, small children. You know, my, my kid is almost old enough to cross the street by himself. And like, we need to make sure that that's safe and we need to coach it. You know, like there's a very different um, set of things that I insist on. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that Dan's kids, you know, the older kids are just, you know, able to go places on their own because they're responsible, not adults, but, you know, they're, they're able to make decisions. Yeah. Um, so I, I, think, I think that to the, to the extent that government is supposed to be a parent, um, that's, a, that's a social choice. I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer in terms of how you do that. I, I think um, if you hire an accountant um, and uh, you say, you know, like, I, I want to make sure that I, you know, don't break any laws when I file my taxes, like, you know, I, I, don't, I don't go to jail for this. Um, and they say, yeah, you know, maybe it'd be a little bit better if you declared this income. You'd say, you know, you're supposed to tell me what to do. Like, I hired you to tell me what to do. Um, if the government is supposed to have the role of telling you what is and isn't safe, if that's, if that's your view of what they should do, then they need to tell you. They don't need to like, well, maybe, you know, it'd be good if people wore masks. Um, that's, you know, the, the, it's, but if you ask your friend who's an accountant for an advice, their role isn't to tell you, no, you must do this. Which relationship is correct? Right. It, it depends on what it is you expect and what you want. Different right. governments so, have and, different relationships with their people. And some, and, right. And sometimes you see here in the States, they'll put out a COVID mask advisory. They, they won't, they won't make a decision. They'll say, we advise people to do this and then, and then people don't do it or they do do it. But I think what I'm more well, getting at is and Americans I, seem just more adverse to having being told what to do in general. Well, no, I mean, I, I think, I think so, what I'm, what I, what I was getting at is, is more, is more, you know, if, if you have a society that has a vaccine and the vaccine makes the risk of COVID far different than it was when we spoke a year ago, uh, when we just didn't know, and you have a, you know, a, a majority of people who have that, and you're based with an uncertain future where you don't know how many variants there are going to be. And every year there may be more variants and it's a virus. So as Rami would tell you, it evolves consistently and constantly. And that's kind of the only thing that you really can say for sure about it is that it will continue to evolve because it is not extinct. Uh, you know, at what, at what point do you say the government should take on a more, you know, advisory role because the majority of the population is in 2021 different than it was as they're vaccinated than they were in, in, you know, March of 2020. And therefore, you know, it may not be the best thing for a country to be telling people, you know, stay in your home by law or don't send your children to school by law if the children are vaccinated, and, you know, which they aren't right now. And we can talk about that later in, in the show. Um, and, you know, I guess, I guess where this is coming from is just, you know, I'm, I'm concerned that, you know, Israel is going to be in this place as Canada might be, and maybe it has to do with the nature of their healthcare system. And I'm not sure about that, where it's constantly expected to be the mother and father for a, for a, a threat that no longer needs mom and dad to tell you what to do. Yeah. So no. I want to, I want to kind of point out, oh, no, no, keep on. Uh, Go ahead, David. Okay, um, so I want to point out there's a big difference. There's a big difference between you know when when your when your kid is uh, um, trying to decide 
um, you know, what, what, uh, what shirt to wear. Um, they can make their decision. If they wear something that makes them look stupid, then they'll, they'll probably learn. Um, you know, if they're um, trying to learn how to, uh, you know, my, my kids are little, they, they, they uh, you know, they want to be able to peel vegetables and are they going to accidentally cut themselves at some point? Probably like that will happen. But again, like that's the kind of thing that happens when you live your life and that's fine. Um, I, I don't let them play in the street, you know, when, when there are cars coming, I don't let them, you know, throw knives at each other. Um, but you know, when the situation changes, um, I think Benny, you're, you're absolutely right. And the, the two halves of an answer are first, yeah, things have changed and we should treat them differently. And um, the US couldn't get people to stay indoors when it was bad. They couldn't get people to wear masks when they knew they needed to. So I'm hesitant to say that they have it right now, even if it's possible that Israel's being overcautious. Right, Rami? I'll tell you something. Um... Talking about Israel, um, one of the things that we, we learn is that to take such, such extreme measure, me, measures like, uh, like uh, um, um, how did it? No, you can say in Hebrew. No, no, no. Like, like uh, to have like um, um, lockdowns. lockdowns yeah. um, it's something that you can't really use for a very long time and you can't use it so often. And also in Israel, it's as a matter of fact, uh, the government is not allowed to do it by law only for a very certain amount of time. And, and also it, it's, it goes immediately to court and, and to, to be judged by, uh, by, by, uh, by the laws of Israel. The only country that I can think about that uh, is restricting uh, their, their citizen by, by law and they are doing it in a very, very efficient way, it's China. Mm. And by the way, we don't hear from them how many patients they have every day or every month and how many people died even at the first wave that they had. So we don't really know how such a way of working, uh, it's working for a very long time. What we know in Israel, for example, we learn that even though uh, you may say that Israel is quite a homogeneous uh, state with with you know, uh, the only Jewish or Jewish and Arab uh, people living in Israel, we discover that we have some uh, different groups of population with different ways 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 of uh, of behavior and responding to to even what the government says. We we saw how the ultra orthodox were behaved in the very, as a matter of fact, maybe till now we saw how the Arab section uh, was. Uh, responding for, a, for the government restrictions. And we saw how the common Israeli citizen uh, responded. So um, bottom line is we need to talk with, with our citizens with logic, first of all. When you are explaining uh, a person by logic, what are the dangers and how we can a, a avoid, you know, killing his uh, father and mother and, uh, and, uh, and destroying his economy and whatever happened during this year. So I think that you are going to get much more collaboration than by pulling and uh, doing uh, some like uh, massive restri restrictions by law. Uh, 
I have a question. I'm not sure. Both of you are welcome to jump into it, or, or Benny. You, you follow this stuff a lot more closely than I do. But now that the vaccine has been introduced, now that in Israel, how, how, what, what percent of us are vaccinated here? I think that we are around almost 70%. 70%, right? And, you know, 70%, I think it's even higher of the people that can be vaccinated, if I'm not mistaken. In America, yeah. I think it's, it's, it's about 70% of... Democrats and about 50% of Republicans or something like that. If I was listening to Farouk. I saw, I saw a stat on the news this morning that only 49% of American citizens uh, overall, including okay. children that can't be, are, okay. are vaccinated at this stage. So children, right. are, are we now, I mean, is this the new, is this going to be with us forever? Are we just going to be living in this COVID reality where we're just getting vaccinated. I know Benny loves these questions. Well, I, I mean, you, Elon Musk is taking volunteers to go to Mars. You can you can get off this ship if you want to. Yeah, I'll be okay. I'll just I'll, I'd prefer to wear a mask. But I mean, is, is this with us now? Just constantly <laughs> mutating? We take vaccinations. Uh, maybe one of you can get so, into the mRNA technology and how they can constantly be tweaking it also for new mutations. I mean, well, what's, what's going to happen now? How do we live um, with this? So I want to... Um, First, you know, if, if you go to Mars, you'll also have to wear a mask. Just, you know, I hate to break it to you, Benny. Oh, a bigger um, mask. But, uh, a mask. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really, it's not going to be more comfortable. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so I, I think um, the question of, you know, I, there, there was a, a poll in England asking people how long they want the restrictions to last. And some very large, you know, 30, 40 percent of people, I don't remember the exact number, um, said they want it to last forever, even after COVID. Like, regardless of whether there's COVID, they just want people masked all the time. Um, maybe, maybe it's a comment about, you know, British people's teeth. I'm, I'm not <laughs> sure, but right. there's, you know, it can only right, be a there, comment. There's something, you know, yeah, um, no, but there's, you know, the people's willingness to, to continue um, being very cautious indefinitely um, has, has dropped a lot. Um, I think that there's no chance that we continue doing this forever, but there's still a question of how safe do we need to be before we say it's safe enough. Um, and part of this from a more you know, sociological perspective is people get used to risks. Um, you know, people, it's just, it takes time. We, we all um, live in a but, country you know, with terrorism regularly and we've kind of learned to live with it right right so so i, I think that there, there's a sociological piece of like people are still kind of trying to get to the point where they um have a kind of well calibrated understanding of the risk of covid at this point um but yeah it's it's i don't think that there's any chance that it stays this way long term i, I don't think that there's um appetite now and i certainly don't think that in another year, two years, as the world is mostly vaccinated, um, that continues um, being kind of a viable, uh, a viable strategy. Um, I, I don't know, uh, maybe Rami can talk about the um, vaccine platforms. I'm, I'm happy to do so, but. Um. Not that I'm such an expert, but uh, first of all, I, I pretty much agree with David. Uh, you know, the human being it's, uh, is quite an adaptive creature, and we are adapting for everything. I want to remind you this uh, period of time that the bombs were exploding in buses all around Israel, and at that time, uh, Yerushalayim was quite 
quite heavily bombarded. Yeah. And, um, and people kept uh, taking buses. And uh, maybe they were afraid, but they kept living because we want you don't to have live. a choice, right? <laughs> we want to live. And, you know, life are, it's like the biggest, you know, it's bigger than anything else. So that's the, that's, uh, that's the motto that I can say uh, yeah. what's going to happen. Um, now we are going to deal with it. We'll adapt to it. We'll adapt to it. Even we're adapting now also. A lot of us already adapted and we're adapting. We're adapting a lot of, uh, in a lot of fields of our, uh, of our activities and, uh, and work and, and, and behavior. Um, now talking about, uh, about the vaccine. I'll put it this way. I think that one of the biggest surprises for the medical uh, scientific world was the RNA, uh, the mRNA vaccine. Um, first of all, it's new, and it was it, it was it. They were talking about it maybe already for a decade, but since the COVID started, a lot of money was spilled into this industry, and they managed to to create vaccine that at least we, that we are using the Pfizer and the other ones that are using the Moderna, we see such a, such a tremendous uh, uh, um, results. And the fact that such a, such a vaccine is going to let the industry create new vaccine in a, in a no time comparing to the old methods, I think that it's one of the revolutions of the last year talking about science. Yeah. Well, Rami, how, how, sorry, Dan, how fast can the vaccine platform be adapted to account for a new variant? You ask, I'm, I'm not an expert. Whatever, from whatever I heard, I read, uh, I think that uh, they, they need like a few weeks, uh, something like uh, two to three months, and, and they, can, uh, they can create already vaccine and submit it also for, uh, for uh, clinical uh, trials. Do you know if there's a... Because it's already been approved for COVID, um, or for at least the variants that we dealt with, is it a different process? I don't, I don't know if it, you know if if you know this, but is it a different process for a variant as it is for the disease itself? I think that um, you, first of all, the only thing that you need is first of all to identify what kind of protein you want to present in the new vaccine. And to uh, and to do a kind of uh, um, genetical engineering mm. and, and add it to the vaccine. By the way, um, the original vaccine wasn't for COVID. I think that they started they started yeah, working for... working it for Ebola. Oh, for I Ebola. think that they were, were they started to work. I think that Moderna and were working on on Ebola vaccine to begin with. Uh, so uh, the platform was already exist, but right experience and now we have already millions of people that got vaccinated with it so so we know much better about the safety measure the safety envelope of this vaccine i think that it's going to be uh, the next way uh, the next way that they are going to create vaccine um curious and and be glad to hear you david and then back to you rami um we, we lost you for a second david but but you're back uh, see if you were sitting here in the studio and you just disappeared and then came back, that would be weird. But uh, he just like goes into another realm of existence. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
this is this is what happens now that we you know everybody's getting used to the world uh you know with with covid and you know everybody everybody gets used to the fact that people can just you know just freeze their freeze their image on the screen and you know like disappear for a couple of you know that's, that's, that's just right. reality now the way it goes we, we, heard, we heard about zoom before yeah yeah. yeah it was uh you know something that was from sci-fi uh prior to this uh well we had we had skype but um I'm curious uh, to hear from both of your perspectives. You know, and David, we had you on the show in October. So almost a year ago, um, back when a lot of this was, was more new. What has happened since then, since this all came out, that has really surprised uh, both of you? Either things that you were expecting to happen that didn't, or things that you weren't expecting at all th- that somehow happened. Uh, we, we can start with you, David. I'm curious, you know, you can go anywhere in the world or in Israel yeah. or in the U.S. Yeah, so I, I think um, I, I think this is a really useful exercise because I think that people have a, a, a very easy time um, deciding that they knew what was going to happen all along. Right. Um, but uh, I think I could I could list lots and lots of things. So I, I would start with um, I was really surprised at how quickly the variants emerged. And that was because I hadn't been thinking about the fact that um, for most viruses, you don't have you know, tens or hundreds of millions of infections that allow variants to emerge. Usually, um, viral evolution is slower than we've seen with COVID because it takes longer because every time somebody gets disease is a new chance for it to, uh, for it to mutate. And, and if, you know, if, if you have tens of millions of people instead of, you know, uh, tens of thousands of people, it, it happens that much faster. Um, so I think that that's um, one thing that I was, I was surprised about that in retrospect, I think was understandable. Um, another thing that I was surprised about um, was the extent to which it seems almost all of the transmission is aerosol rather than um, via um, surfaces. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, we, and, and I think when I, when I went on last time, I, this was much, much less clear, certainly to me. But it turns out that, that um, it's still not certain because it's hard to figure this out because you have to figure out what happened, you know, wh- when somebody got it when you're not watching them. Um, but it seems like the vast, vast majority are actually via, um, via aerosol. Um, I, I think... The, the last thing that I will say that surprised me um, was the world has been talking about how to respond to a pandemic um, and people have been warning about this for a long time. Um, and I was surprised at how badly public health um, performed a lot of different places in responding to something that we knew was coming. We knew, and, and Israel did a relatively good job, but it, it certainly wasn't enough to stop the spread when they, when they started out, you know, nobody, no, uh, no, not nobody. Vietnam did an incredible job. Australia did a pretty good job after the first round, New Zealand, like there were places that did it. Um, China managed to close the country. Um, and, and I'll say kind of going back to something that was said a bunch earlier, uh, it's true that China is not at all transparent, but also, we would know if there were millions of cases and there aren't like they did in fact, basically control it. Um, 
know, it's not clear exactly what what they did and exactly, but it, it was basically controlled. Well, it's they, it's they, also they not clear with because, the it's also not clear what the North Koreans did that they had no cases whatsoever. Yes, well, um, there's a really there's a great yeah there's a great um, there's a great a great solution um, for uh, for for many many problems if if you can get away with it. Um, that the North Koreans uh, employ, making making things up out of whole cloth, yeah. obviously. Um, but uh, anybody you want. Um, no, so I, I mean, yeah, but no, I, I was I was disappointed at how poorly a lot of different organizations performed at something that they knew was a real possibility and had essentially planned specifically for. Um, yeah, that was a. What's so those, those are my biggest three. I could go with Yeah. You know, uh, it's very interesting. Uh, I remember that more or less the time that uh, the COVID started, there was uh, a new movie about the pandemic coming out. And uh, it's like, uh, it's like to sue it. Which one? To, I don't remember the name, but it, it was like people in Hollywood already knew that there was going to be such a pandemic. And it was not one by one, but... Uh, Pretty much, pretty much predicted at least the very beginning of uh, of the pandemic. I don't remember the name. New, a new one it was last year, oh, two years ago. I'll have to look it up. Um, I I think that I agree with David uh, on. I, maybe that was the biggest surprise for me, uh, the way that some um, countries. Are you, talking about, are you talking about contagion? Contagion's not new, is it? Yeah, twenty twenty. Oh, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. I think that that was the name. Um, if you didn't see it, look at it. Uh, it's, it's, I, I it's, lived it's, it. <laughs> it's, it's it's including, I think, also vaccine there. Okay. <laughs> um, and the, the way that uh, some Western countries uh, uh, dealt with the COVID, um, let's talk about, for example, Italy or Spain. It was like overwhelming. I was like looking at. Uh, I couldn't even believe what's going on there. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to try to also to, uh, to uh, uh, research and to make conclusions why some countries uh, in Europe, for example, got it very bad and some others didn't got it. At the, I'm talking about the first wave. Yeah. Do we still know why? Like Sweden and all. I mean, why? I, 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 I didn't read any articles that were dealing uh, you know, drilling down and trying to figure out really what happened, besides the fact that they claim that, for example, the Latinos, the Italians, and the Spanish are much, you know, much more uh, uh, touchy uh, kind of uh, society, mm -hmm. and, and they are much warm, more, uh, warmer than, than the others, but I don't know. Uh, but for sure, you saw how they hardly managed to, to deal with it, even inside Italy. North Italy, that's considered to be the, like, like the most wealthiest part of Italy, was not was a disaster area comparing to southern Italy. So it's very interesting to, to look at it also from this point of view. Um, I think that if I'm looking at it from my, you know, the physician point of view, uh, a lot of technologies or a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, um, means that we, for example, in a medical system adopted through the year uh, are going 
first of all, they changed already the, the, the medical world by us. And this is, this is kind of uh, brought it, brought it um, at least one generation uh, in, in front of what we were thought, uh, thinking about what, mm. where, where we're going to be uh, in these days. Like, what? Uh, like for example, uh, the, the seeing, PA, seeing patients with video conference, with, uh, with chatting, with uh, phone calls, uh, um, now, nowadays, nowadays the doctors, uh, maybe 50% of my patients, I'm, um, I'm not really seeing them. I'm, I'm in touch with them with other means. And you know what? Everybody are happy. Besides the fact that we, the doctors, are not so happy because we see much, much more uh, patients. So we see mm. we have more, way much more work than we used to have before. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, talking about platforms, the platforms became much better, much more modern. We are controlling also, even if I'm looking about my HMO, the way that we are controlling our patients, uh, uh, I think that it's much, much more efficient than what we had before. Medically, um, spe medically speaking, is there anything lost by not seeing those patients in person? Are you, are you, are you missing the opportunity to correctly diagnose a, a, an issue if you're, if they're not in front of you to, you know, check vitals and it, get eyes question, on them, so to speak? It's a question that being asked uh, many times during this year, and uh, I don't have really an answer. I'll ask you, you know, like a good Jew, I'll ask you a question. When you need, when you have, uh, uh, for example, some uh, chronic drugs that you are, that you need a prescription, you really need to see the doctor every two, three months. Uh, you can see them, you can see him also by Zoom. You can, uh, you can uh, uh, video chat with him. You can get a lot of information many times, not really having him in your clinic. Correct. And, uh, and yet, yet, there, yet there are other times when I feel like I want my doctor to be more than WebMD. Okay. So oh. I think... And I can go see him. In those cases, I can, I can make an appointment to go exactly, see my doctor one-on-one. Exactly. One. Uh, I, find myself, I find myself many times telling my patients, hey, listen, I'm sorry, but I can't, uh, I can't really uh, look at your throat without you know, looking, looking at it, even though they are starting to be also some some tools, some, uh, some uh, uh, means that uh, we can, we can uh, listen to your heart, we can check even your, your blood pressure and heart uh, and, and ECG and many other things uh, with your, uh, with your uh, a, a smartphone and some appliances. It, it's amazing how things are, are getting into it. And yes, we're learning, we're learning many, we're learning, we're learning what, what, are, what are the things that are, there is no way you need to see the person and you'll be surprised. Sometimes I need to see the person even to, to make a judgment if he's in, the, in a depression. Uh, but, but there are many other, other situations that I uh, basically, uh, I'm not having any added value by calling him to my clinic and, and I must see you. I can, I can tell a person many times uh, uh, what to do and, and what he has even without touching him. Yes, it's not the conventional, uh, uh, traditional medicine that I learned when I was in medical school. But uh, yes, we, we are learning to add, uh, to add some other means to the way that we are working. Yeah. And the same kind of thing, it's not only, not only by medicine. I mean, look at how many governmental offices yeah, started to give some services 
online. You, you remember that's, that's one, two years ago, uh, uh, being able to submit one, one form to, uh, uh, for, to the transportation uh, ministry, or I don't know who, I mean. Only if you did it by fax. <laughs> oh, by fax, yeah. <laughs> oh. They love working with fax. Remember, we used, to, we used to be one of the last two advanced countries to still use fax. Do you know who the other one was? I, I don't know if it's true or not, but this is no. what I, I understood somewhere. So it was us and it was Japan and Japan was doing it ironically. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I want to, I want to um, point out something uh, that was discussed a little bit ago about uh, why it was worse some places than others. And I think this is an interesting, um, an interesting example of something that historians talk about a lot where, you know, there, there are some kind of crazy things that are just like contingent. It, it happened to work out that way. And that's, you know, why did it happen that way? Well, there was this crazy coincidence. Um, the, the pandemic relevant one of these is, uh, um, is um, right after World War I, um, the US President Woodrow Wilson um, ended up with um, the, the flu um, right when there was the conference to figure out what was happening with, uh, with Germany um, after World War I. And he was very opposed to punitive measures and he couldn't make it. So they ended up with very, you know, and, and that's completely like just a random contingent fact that like, how would you have predicted that, that you know, the punitive measures would have led to World War II. But um, in the spread of COVID was very much a, a lot, and, and the severity was a lot of idiosyncratic and weird factors. So the two places that got hit very badly early were Northern Italy and Iran both of which imported lots of workers from the Wuhan region of China. Interesting. Why? Um, Northern, Northern Italy does a lot of garment manufacturing, which is one of the reasons they're very, they're very wealthy, partially because that, that's been a, an industry there. The, people were flying back a tremendous amount, back and forth a tremendous amount. And so there was a huge number of cases before anybody realized that something was going on. Iran also did a lot of, um, there were a lot of flights, but you know, I don't remember exactly what yeah, they, why are, what they why do. Why are people from China there, there going to at that pace? There's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of trade. Well, because, because nobody else can because of the, the no, um, uh, sanctions, but um, which, which China is ignoring. No, um, I, 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 so th there was a lot of, so there were very large outbreaks in those two places before anybody realized that like this was a big deal. Right. So it's really hard to control a pandemic once it's spread a bunch. And so they got hit really hard, really early before anybody knew what to do, which meant also that like the case fatality rate was higher because um, you know, doctors, many places learned from what people found out in Italy worked or didn't work. Um, you know, I mean, you know, medical uh, procedures advanced in terms of treating COVID over the course of the pandemic because they figured out what worked and what didn't. Um, so there were a lot of things where I, I actually, I don't think that there's any deep mystery about why it is that Northern Italy got hit very hard. Um, I, I just think that it's kind of, you know, this random fact that the garment industry uses lots of people from Wuhan. David, you know, uh, sorry, first of all, it's not explaining what happened in Spain. Uh, that's no, that's another country. And the second thing is, if yeah. I remember, um, a lot, a lot of connections were between 
Taiwan and Wuhan. I mean, because you know, Wuhan is also a mm -hmm. center for, for, uh, for electronics. And uh, Taiwan yeah. managed, managed pretty well to, to contain the, the pandemic. Taiwan, Taiwan's been ready for a pandemic since SARS. They've been very, very worried. They started masking very early. I, you know, it's, it's not that these are kind of unexplainable things. And yet yeah, Spain is an outlier. And I'm, you know, if, if you were to dig into it, I would be very surprised if you didn't find kind of specific idiosyncratic factors that explain a lot of what happened. Um, there are going to be, you know, some of them are going to be things like um, people being, you know, more touchy-feely in some countries than others. Some of them will have to do with um, how much time people spend indoors versus outdoors in different countries at different times of the year. Um, th there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of actual kind of hard to figure out in advance epidemiological factors um, that are going on. Um, but, but I don't think that it's kind of, um, I've, I've heard people say, well, it, you know, there's no way to predict or there, there's no way to understand why it was worse some, worse some places than others. It was worse some places than others for very understandable reasons. We just didn't know about them beforehand. You know, I, we, uh, early on, I remember, um, you know, it, it seemed Europe was getting hit really hard. And uh, India, for example, or, or throughout uh, Africa was not. And now it seems to be the case that India... I mean, last time I was paying attention to it, maybe about a month ago, was hit incredibly hard, and they don't have as many, nearly as many, or even close to as many vaccines as they need now. Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, so, what what happened in those kind of countries that that are globalized? People do travel um, that don't have the public health systems that we do. Or, or Japan, or Japan, which is terribly strange mm -hmm. that they seem to be, you know, so low in their in their vaccination rates. Yet they're in this Asian area where they, where they, well, where they do have, you know have high levels of masking and they're, it's a part of their culture. It seems to also look look. Japan just screwed up screwed up the rollout. I'm just straightforward. Like they they didn't get the doses they need as early as they could have because they didn't buy them and they didn't put things in place to distribute them as quickly as they could have. Um, the same way the U.S. did, except that the U.S. had the advantage of having bought all of the doses really early. Um, but yeah, they just. The reason why they don't have vaccines is because they screwed up there. But, but why were some countries like India, for example, seem to be okay? And I remember, you know, people were talking about the various, the climate, people don't use air conditioning as much, so the windows are always open, all these things. And now India got slammed, you know, completely slammed by it. Uh, so why, why not early on? And now you're seeing some of these countries getting hit hard. The only so part of this India is that uh, now I think that I read that they reached something like 60% immunity between vaccination and people that were sick. There was something that was published a week ago, something like that. Um, we don't know. I mean, uh, um, you're talking about India. I, I, there was a time that I thought that somehow maybe the Oriental has a kind of a natural immunity for or COVID, because you didn't hurt so many, you didn't hurt so many uh, countries in the Far East that were right. hit strongly with uh, with the with the pandemic. Right, right. You're talking about countries like Vietnam, which you mentioned, David, and, and but, India. But but and you Thailand, see, but, but you see that besides China, today you have you have problems basically almost every Far East country. 
so it caught up to them. So what happened that it didn't get there early and now it is? I mean, that's if, if I'm asking the question correctly. So, you go ahead, David. In India, I, I think, yeah, there's, there's one, one part of this is in India, they tried really hard early on to shut down and they were uh, at least partially successful. Um, they were in some ways lucky that the people least able to, sh to, um, to comply with shutdown orders were in rural places, places that weren't as crowded and they worked outdoors. Um, so it seems like they, they were actually successful in shutting down to reduce transmission. They did a lot, their, their public health system did a lot of work to try and, um, to try and control it. Um, they couldn't keep that going long-term. You, you, you know, as, as Israel, as the US, as everybody found out, you can't shut down indefinitely. Um, and, you know, they, I, I think there are definitely kind of factors that relate to um, when and where people spend time indoors and which variant we're talking about because Delta clearly does spread more quickly. Um, but part of it is just, they, they did a better job early on. I think um, Australia is kind of the opposite where um, they did a relatively bad job very early on and then decided to get serious and like just told people stay indoors, like don't go outside. Um, and it turns out that if nobody's in contact with anybody else, there's not very much transmission. Um, David, one of the things that you said to us in the previous uh, episode that we did with you was that if you are looking at this from the, from the perspective of risk management or catastrophic risk management, one of the things that you would recommend to governments to do essentially is to just throw obscene amounts of money at the problem. Because if you're looking at losing X percent of GDP due to virus, you need to counteract that. And it makes sense to spend a trillion and a half dollars on you know, developing technologies and developing awareness and doing whatever that needs to be, you know, what, what needs to be done. Um, so I'm wondering, where do you, where do you, you know, did we do that uh, well enough in, 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 in the West? And then kind of from my own perspectives, you know, we've talked about this before and I talk about it at nauseam on the show. It's like, because I work in travel in my day job, you know, I'm, I'm uniquely impacted by this in many ways, but I also see that there are, you know, technologies that might exist, which could make it easier for people to more normally enter and exit countries uh, that either the rollout of them in Israel is just done ineffectively or isn't done at all, or perhaps uh, it gets caught up with politics, but it, but it also seems like maybe the resources aren't going there because, you know, the, the pie is still being divided up if you're playing by the rules of the old game as opposed to the rules of the new game. Um, and, then, and then maybe kind of just, you know, again, we're talking about a virus that seems to be changing in, in terms of its, how fast the variants are spreading. And when you have to develop a new vaccine or, or tweak the vaccine so often, and get that out there in the distribution of it to, to all these different countries, many of which today are not even receiving the first vaccine. You know, how how can we throw more money at it? I guess to make sure that uh, that it's being handled adequately. Yeah. Um, so I guess on, on the first thing, did we did we throw enough money at it? Um, no, we definitely didn't. Um, we did a better job than a lot of people initially suggested. So the the I mean, in the U.S., the Trump administration's um, kind of plan to just go all out for vaccines um, was 
more successful than people suspected it would be. Um, as I said last time on, on the, the episode um, last year, um, we should just start building vaccine factories all over the place and like just have tons of doses ready to go for whenever it is that like we get we get the vaccines. And this was before we knew how effective the vaccines were or whether they'd be. Um, and the point was, if we had thrown another couple billion dollars at building the vaccine factories, um, and, and that's not a little bit of money, but it's not a huge amount compared to what countries were spending. Um, yeah, and if they had done how much that, they were losing every day also. Right. Um, if we had done that, um, we would not be at a point where, um, you know, developed countries are just now getting to the point where most of their population is vaccinated and developing countries are still kind of just getting started. Um, we could plausibly have been six months further along because we started paying for it six months earlier. Um, I think there are lots of other places where um, spending more money on the problem is just a, the straightforward correct thing to do, whether or not it's wasteful, and, and it probably would be, whether or not it's kind of the, the economically optimal um, thing to do. And yeah, that's hard to calculate. So like, don't spend your time doing that. Just throw money at it because it's a pandemic. Um, the other side is we actually did throw enough money at the problem in the US and to some extent in Israel to um, cushion the economic impact, which you know, the, I'm, I'm not going to get into the economic theory because it's not really my, my, my area, but like we, you know, the, the, the recession was incredibly short. The recovery was really so, um, and, and, you know, things are really getting back, even though, even though there are industries that are still hurting very badly, we came out of this economically much less badly hurt than we could have been. Um, and, and I think that's one of, by the um, way, one of my surprises is that. That they, yeah, that they actually, so uh, the, the, the other side of this is um, recent U.S. news. Um, they're talking about cutting the spending on pandemic preparedness from $30 billion to $5 billion in the, in the infrastructure plan. And the comment from everybody I know in public health is, what is it going to take to convince people that... <laughs> We need to spend on pandemic preparedness because <laughs> we're literally still in the middle of a pandemic. Like, and, and you're talking about, you know, oh, we're going to spend a trillion dollars, but like eh, half a percent on the thing that we're still dealing with, that should be enough. Um, it's, just, it's just insane that they're so reluctant to spend money on the thing that I think everybody should be pretty clear, like was a great investment to the extent we did it and would have been better if we tripled or quadrupled or quintupled our investment. I didn't know that. That's, that's, that's insanely stupid. Many. I think well, I, there, there, uh, this, is, this is still like being discussed. So maybe, yeah. that, you know, maybe that's not the final decision, yeah. but yeah, it's, yes. Rob, you want to jump in I think that here? could be that uh, one by the name of... Uh, B. Netanyahu uh, heard your uh, sixth uh, podcast and follow it, uh, at least talking about uh, spending as much as, uh, as much as you can, but spending money and getting the vaccine. Uh, so uh, there, were, there were a few people uh, that did the right thing, at least talking about treating the, you know, the, the situation. I don't know so much about the economy the because I am, I'm, not, I'm not an economist. So I don't know about no, so much. BB, but is it a comment? Be the economist. Exactly. Right. 
Bibi the economist was the one who figured out that, yeah, by the way, money fixes this problem. And not only that, not only that, spend a lot of money now and save after, afterwards from all the, you know, the damages that you saved that are not going to, uh, to happen. Oh, and, uh, and, and maybe it'll get you reelected also, right? <laughs> but, it, but or maybe it won't. Almost, so maybe close. But so close. We're gonna, we're gonna take your comment, Rami, and we're gonna pretend that BB listened to our podcast and uh, listened to David's advice and uh, <laughs> and follow it. I'll take credit. Yeah, take credit. <laughs> we're happy to pretend also. Sure. Um, do you think? Do you? Do you, yeah, do you think, think? No, go ahead. No, 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 please. No, I was. I was just gonna say that. Do you think that we're gonna find a way? going forward i always like i like i always like to hear your predictions and rami i'd hear your prediction as well any day it's do you think going forward we're going to hit sort of this magic sweet spot where we're able to develop vaccines efficiently and get them distributed efficiently enough to stay ahead globally of any new variants that come out like we might be able to do let's say with the flu or with other things that we vaccinate for uh, i think it's our um if there is a disappointment, talking about global disappointment, I think that it's uh, the the, wolf, the the World Health Organization that really didn't really uh, work till now, and I think till now it's still not doing doing its job. And when you are talking about uh, distributions of uh, of vaccine, uh, you need first of all to have an infrastructure that can distribute something something like that. You are talking about Billions of uh, of uh, uh, doses for for a, a hundreds of uh, countries. It's not such a such an easy thing. I think that uh, at the very end, still money talks, and still we need uh, strong countries and with their money to first of all to to spill the money into into the industry to create the vaccine and to create medicines. And, and probably we are going to still see that first of all, uh, strong economies like United States, like uh, common European market, hopefully also Israel are going to, uh, to get their uh, vaccines and, uh, and uh, medications before the third war. Uh, but, but the question is, if we are really prepared to spend money, first of all, and to create uh, uh, an efficient system of distribution of those cures also for those that are not so wealthy. When will when will we'll understand that it's a global problem? And if we are not taking care of the last person in Africa or in Asia, and we are vaccinating him, so we are also in a danger still. So we are going to still suffer from it. Yeah, I, I think that that's right. Um, I think I, I strongly agree. I think that there's um, there's an imperative here. I, I I definitely think the World Health Organization gets a share of the blame, but um, I will say they put Covax together and said this is how much money we need to fund vaccines for the rest of the world, um, and the U.S. passed stimulus after stimulus and couldn't. Like and they and they gave some money to these organizations, but the amount that the organizations said they needed to do this was an order of magnitude larger than what they 
eventually settled on as their target. Um, and what they, you know, and, and that was still double what I think they ended up getting. Kovex um, never got the funding that still has not gotten the funding that, that they need to distribute the vaccines, which is um, crazy given that we do know that the variants are still continuing to emerge. Um, so I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not super optimistic about, you know, the, the world's willingness to be nice and help their friend out, even when it's helping themselves out doing so. Um, I'm, I'm very much a techno-optimist in terms of the vaccine development. Um, and I, I think that- Is that a new uh, word? Well, I mean, learn a new look, word? I, you know- Techno-optimist? Techno-optimist. It's a new word. No. Yes. We like learning new words. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, so um, the, the, the mRNA uh, vaccine platform is incredibly powerful. There are a lot of things that are being discussed. Um, people are already looking, you know, I know people who are, um, you know, people, people at Oxford are, are actively working after, after the COVID vaccine that they managed. Um, they're actively working on a universal flu vaccine. Um, people are actively working. Like there are a lot of vaccines that are like really getting there. Um, and I think that um, Rami is completely on target about the, the need for um, distribution networks and getting it to the people. Um, my, my hopeful piece here is um, we've done this. The world got rid of smallpox. Smallpox is a past tense disease, which is an amazing, amazing, amazing thing. Just like thinking about what, what, that, what that means. Um, polio, we're getting close. We're not, we're not there, um, but we're getting closer and closer. Like this is, we're, we can wipe out diseases. The world has done this um, and you know, I, I think we'll continue to do this. And I think that um, the, the, the availability of new vaccines that are able to do this are, kind of, the question is how long it takes and how much um, effort is needed. Right. I will say on the timelines for getting um, the vaccines put together, the UK um, made a proposal at the G7 meeting, I think, um, with a hundred day timeline, um, a number of senior people in the Biden administration, the, the head of White House OSTP um, has uh, endorsed this explicitly as like, yes, we should, Starting day one is we find a new disease. By day 100, we should have diagnostics and vaccines ready to go. Um, I, I'd like it if part of that 100-day timeline was scaling up production also, going back to my... So if, if I understand you correctly, just just because just uh, mm -hmm. uh, the layman here trying to understand uh, these kind of things... Well, if I'm understanding correctly, we, we kind of got the science right, and now the challenge is the global distribution network. And, and I think what we're not saying uh, that makes it even harder, correct me in a second where I erred on that, but what makes it even harder is the, the need, at least with this kind of vaccine, to refrigerate it to, what is it, minus 60 or minus 80 or whatever it is Celsius, that makes it so much more harder to distribute and that it has a shelf life, and you can't just you know put it in the, in the back of trucks or or whatever, and, and distribute it. Is, is that the challenge now? Though we kind of have the science, but we don't have so, the infrastructure? Go ahead. There Dan. are a couple of parts. The first one is cold chain, cold chain distribution networks are um, the kind of difficult challenge that we actually know exactly how to, how to solve. 
um, you know, it's, it's a little bit expensive, but not, not so expensive compared to all the other things that we're talking about doing. Um, putting it in place is hard. Putting together any infrastructure network in developing countries can be very challenging, but also it's the kind of thing that just needs um, funding. You know, yeah. tell Amazon it. that they need that. Yeah, I'm saying like tell Amazon that that we're going to pay them what it costs to get the vaccines to people, and they'll figure out how to do it. Tell FedEx to do. You know, there there are people who their job is to figure out how to do global distribution of things, and they can do sure. it. Um, the, the actually very nice in, in some ways the in Israel they did a great job with it right yeah even even when we were talking yeah. about the cold chain the the, the success of uh, of you know sending a small amount of uh, vaccines uh, they did a very good uh, job with it hmm. I, I'm curious yes. uh, I want to change it's gears. doable yeah I um, want to change gears for a second just, here just and, the, the, oh, go ahead, the piece well, the piece the piece that they can't that they haven't figured out which is critical and we know how to do, but nobody's quite there, is um, testing and approving vaccines that quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and there are ways to do that, including human challenge trials, which I'm a big proponent of, and I can talk about that ad nauseum, but I won't. Um, but there, there are ways to get, um, to, to, get, to get that done. And in many ways, the biggest challenge um, is not the technology, is not designing the vaccines, it's iterating and producing them and checking that they work. And checking they work. Um, I, I guess I have two. I had one question, but now I have two. Your, your comment there sparked another question here. So I'll, I'll, ask, uh, I'll ask the easier one and then the harder one. Did we get better at testing for COVID? Because nobody's talking about that anymore. I remember at the beginning, and, and I think maybe when you were on the show, David, we, we were saying, why aren't there quicker, almost immediate tests. And I keep hearing that they exist out there, but, you know, instant or near instant or tests that you get back within an hour, cheaper tests, tests that you can do at the entrance to places. Um, it, it seems like now that there's a vaccine, nobody's talking about ramping up the ability to just test people really, really quickly. Um, and I'm wondering what happened to that. Or am I just not paying attention to it as a, as a citizen? Do you in the medical or the policy community here, are you guys talking about it, Rami? First of all, there are. There are, there are kits of uh, a vaccine check that you can get results in 15 minutes. And 15. 15 minutes. Are they, are they affordable? Um, you are right now in the States. How much is it going to cost you if you go to 7-Eleven, you'll buy one? It's true. You, you could probably buy one for about 30 bucks. 20 bucks? Yeah. 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 And they're already on the market? Yeah. 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 Yes. The, so uh, part of the reason you didn't notice is because we solved the problem. While, like, while, while we were getting vaccines, um, we kind of solved that problem uh -huh. most of the way, kind of. But um, if you are looking at... Uh, at um, the technologies of uh, discovering and and um, and uh, giving you the information of uh, uh, who is sick and who is not, you need to know also that always, as long as you are going to to go to the low tech to the to the kits that are giving you results in 15 minutes, you are a you are, you are widening your margins of. Uh, false negative, false, false positive, and you need to create your own uh, policy uh, what, how, to, how, to how to deal with it. For example, in Israel, if you are doing a fast, uh, a fast track uh, uh, test, 
and you are getting it positive, it's not necessarily that you are really sick. You need to do a, to do a form of PCR because a form of PCR gives you a 95, 98, even 90, 99% uh, um, that, that you are really sick. And, and that's a very good, that's, that's a very good uh, uh, um, test mm. to, to, to do. I'd be curious to talk to you guys um, about, about anti-vax culture. Go, go ahead, do that, and then we'll talk about anti-vax culture. Before, before that, and that's another one that I can spend a lot of time on. Um, so um, there is, um, and I'm, I'll, I'll, the, the link is available for this report, but there's a new report I, I helped on about how it is that you would do um, early warning systems, and there are technologies that we're developing now that are very general for um, for, for detection, if you like new words, metagenomic sequencing um, is one of these new technologies that, yeah, so basically, basically you, you can take a sample a linguistic and just optimist figure out what, yeah, um, no, you can take, you can take a sample um, from somebody and instead of testing whether COVID is there, just sequence, like get DNA sequence data on everything that's there. Um, and then the task is a computer task of you know, filtering out and figuring out what exactly is there. Um, and it turns out that computers are super fast and they're getting faster. So like, that's a better problem to have. Um, so there, there are technologies that we um, have and are continuing to develop that um, in the future will make this even easier. Um, that there are a lot of technologies that kind of, so, so we figured it out for COVID and we have the rapid tests and we have the PCR tests that are going faster, even if they're not, um, you know, even, even if capacity in many parts of the world is still very limited, but um, but we also have kind of the next generations of technology that are even more powerful and can be even faster. So I want to switch gears for a second here, and um, I'm just curious about this whole anti-vaxxer culture. Um, why? <laughs> why are people? I mean, I, we have the short, I, effort, but but we have time to get into it, and then I'd be curious. Um, do you meet these people, Rami? Do they come to you? You know, just can, can we get into their mindset a little bit? You know, who are these people? Why are they so, you know, against this vaccine? Is it just because it was developed so quickly and they're suspicious? Is there, you know, maybe, maybe we'll start with Rami. Just on, they don't on, want five G, Dan. They don't want five G. Five G, and then David, if you want to, if you want to kind of take that afterwards, and 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 we can we can spin off onto this one. <laughs> Well, in Israel, we don't have so much those five Gs, but uh, we have we have uh, we have uh, a group that it's not homogeneous. It's like uh, uh, people that that comes from very different uh, uh, way of thinking. And uh, I'll tell you the truth: um, I find it very hard to speak with them. And most of them comes to you the comes with. Plenty of knowledge. Uh, the knowledge it's uh, what I'm calling a semi-scientific or pseudo-scientific. And uh, if you are not really so much on it and you know the all the data and information, you find it very hard to argue with them and, and it's exhausting also. You don't yeah. have, in the 10 minutes that the doctor has, you don't have the time for it. So I'm not fighting with them. You don't want to vaccinate, okay. You don't want to take. Uh, I'm I'm offering you. The, I don't know what antibiotics for your uh, for your uh, strep uh, throat. You don't want to take. 
what can I do? Uh, I'm only telling you what are the possibilities and what are the dangers that you are putting yourself and the others. I'm much more restrict about people that are coming to the clinic, for example, without any mask. Can you ever just say to them, Rami, like, which one of us here has a medical degree? Which one of us doesn't? And doesn't that count for anything anymore? Um, can you be direct with people and say, listen, I understand that you feel a certain way because you read some stuff online no. and what you read might be okay, but really you didn't go to medical school and you're in you over your head. You haven't been in, the, in, in a medical, uh, in, a, in a clinic uh, in quite, quite a bit, hey? <laughs> you, you don't understand that today- we're pretty healthy guy, I don't know. Today, to, today, today when we're talking about politically correct, you, you don't really, you can't really say to your patients, hey, um, listen, I'm the smarter and you are whatever. No, you can't say that, but it's, but it's also implied in that I'm choosing to go to a doctor and not to a witch doctor because I want something treated. And therefore, I want to go to some, somebody that I hope knows a little bit no about doctor, medicine. No, doctor. I read it in the internet, and that's what I want. I want you to write me a prescription for whatever I want, and don't, don't start to convince me that uh, I'm going to die or I don't know what. Um, the internet, man. It's, it's a whole different, so, it's all different uh, ballgame. Go ahead, David. <laughs> so this is this is the the risk communication, the health and risk communication um, piece. Um, we know a lot about how to talk to people about risk. We know a lot about uh, how to talk to people about vaccines. Um, vaccine hesitancy did not start with COVID. Um, kind of unfortunately, people have been dumb about this for quite a while. Um, but I want to I want to be very clear about something. Not everybody, most of the people who are not vaccinated, who are um, not getting vaccinated now, um, are not um, what yeah. you'd normally refer to as anti-vaxxer. They're mostly what, what we call um, vaccine hesitant. Um, and, and what that means is um, they have a lot of uncertainty. Um, you know, if you have to make a decision, look, there are a lot of people out there who say like, look, I have a headache, but like, I don't really need an Advil. Um, you know, why would I take a drug if I don't need to? Um, and this is a, this is a drug. Like why are, am, are we sure that I need to take it? And, and the answer is um, yes, but you need to be clear about this in a way that's kind of not talking down to them, but also um, explains and answers the questions that they have. And people have, I think, legitimate concerns, that addressable, but legitimate concerns about, well, wasn't the vaccine rushed? And the answer is yes, but not in ways that compromise safety. And I can go into details about exactly how they did that and what they parallelized and what they didn't parallelize and how they um, you know, uh, didn't wait to do phase two and phase three studies for multiple years the way they normally do when they're doing this. And that doesn't mean they did the studies differently. It means that they you know, cut through red tape. Um, like there are a lot of places where legitimately people said it was supposed to take five years and we have a vaccine in a year. How do we know if it's safe? Um, and they have confusions, um, some of which um, are, um, I think, spread um, by some certainly maliciously. And I'm not going to talk about um, kind of information warfare, um, except to say we do know that um, Russian disinformation has been very active in spreading vaccine misinformation before COVID and now, um, oh. we know that- um, I'm shocked. 
No, I, I mean, I know the yeah. Russians have been spreading political disinformation to weaken no, no, the fabric of American society, it's, but it's why? That vaccine. Basically to... To collapse America? To collapse Not the West? Not only America, the West. They, 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 no, they, they, pick anything, they pick anything that they can that they can get people to argue about, and vaccines are one of them. I, this, I don't think, I mean, like, maybe, I, I don't think the, the intent, you know, to, to be down the cascos for the, our, our um, you know, Russian... Uh, um, disinformation. I, I really, I, I don't think that the intent is to um, get people to die. I think it's just to um, spread more dissent inside of the U.S. and, and everywhere in the Western world. But um, so, so that's the source of a lot of this disinformation. But when somebody sees in their in their Facebook feed that six thousand people died after getting the vaccine, that's a scary number. And when they click on the link and they say, look, U.S. government documents, theirs, you know, the, the reporting system says that 6,000 people died. And that's actually the number that's in the system. Yeah. Well, that, that sounds scary. And, and you can explain to them that, yes, 6,000 people died. Um, these are elderly people. It doesn't mean they died in any way related to the vaccine, right. but the legal requirement for um, the type of conditional approval that the COVID vaccine got is that you have to report any time anybody died. And um, there's a there's a line from Family Guy that I like quoting about this, um, which is, you know, somebody says, do you want to, you know, like, um, oh, uh, a used car. And, and Peter goes, oh, yeah, I'd never buy a used car. I know a guy who uh, bought a used car, bam, 10 years later, heart attack. Yeah. And like, like, What's what's the but but that's that's the that's the level of connection you're talking about when you sure. say like, so, you know, theirs has incidents of somebody got the vaccine and then was hit by a bus. Right. And they died. That wasn't you know, I mean, I, you know, maybe the vaccines make you magnetic. Like, I mean, you know, there, there's there's no connection. Right. Five years um, old and they had so, a heart attack. You know, it's like, uh, right. Right. Uh, I'm saying so. Right. So there's a lot of but but when presented, um you know, by people who have an agenda, it can look really scary. And I think that it's important to try and address that. Um, and I think that, you know, you need to do it in a way that actually addresses legitimate sources of confusion um, among people who are smart and well-educated and not doctors and not public health people. And that's okay. Like, yeah. you know, computer programmers aren't supposed to be public health people. They're smart people. You should address their questions. Doctors don't have hours to spend debating this. Yep. It's, yeah, it's, it's a problem. We had a, we had a guest on the show um, from the Haredi community here. And, and we, you know, we were talking to him about other things, but we, we talked also about COVID and, and, and um, his, do you, I don't know if you recall this, Benny. Um, You're talking about... Um, the episode with Guy Madelon. Yeah. Uh, doctor, Rabbi, Guy Madelon, different kind of doctor. But uh, he, he brought up an interesting point in that, uh, you know, we we're talking about in the Haredi community, they're actually in some ways more willing to listen to the government medical professionals because they're not scientifically educated. And if you're slightly scientifically educated, then you think you can go online and self-diagnose and be smarter than, than the doctor versus those who just realize they aren't, you know, scientifically literate. So they just listen to what the government uh, says so it's kind of almost counterintuitive that a little bit of education in some cases might not be better than no education I must uh, tell on you, these issues i must tell you that uh um without in, you know generalizing generalization for the whole community but uh us 
as a religious uh, Jew, I, I was very, very surprised and disappointed from the attitude of the Haredi community mm. talking about the whole, the whole year of the COVID. By the way, yeah. not only here, not only in Israel, also what happened in New, New York, York yeah. New Jersey, in all the, in all the, the, the Haredi England. Era. Yeah, yeah, and I, 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 till now, I don't understand. I don't understand the psychology, and I don't understand how how they came to such a behavior because it's so much not Jewish, but it happened. Yeah, that's all. No, it was a, it's, it was a fascinating development to watch unfold and and to try to understand it and try to talk to people from within the community also to try to get their perspective on things, which we try to do on the show and, and also things that I did off off the air to with people who didn't want to go on the air to talk about uh, right. th these trends. Um, curious for a second, and I don't mean this question to be political in any kind of way. Um, so let's not go there. Um, but we had in the midst of the treatment um, at, at almost similar stages, changes in administrations here in Israel and in the U.S. Um, and, and I'm curious, just on a very practical level, um, did did the did either administration that came in? We're talking, of course, about the the Biden administration first, and uh, and then, of course, uh, this new Bennett Lapid government. Are they doing anything different, practically, not rhetorically, um, than their than their predecessors that are more or less successful in handling the pandemic? And of course. Here we got vaccinated earlier, but uh, just, you know, if we can use it as a platform without, you know, bashing one government or the other or, or overly supporting another, just on a very practical level. David, you want to answer? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll answer for, for the U.S. because I'm, I'm actually um, more closely involved um, with the political developments there. I think that... Um, President Trump should get a tremendous amount of credit for um, funding the vaccines and getting them done quickly. And I, you know, I, I, I agree with him on very little, but he should get a tremendous amount of credit for that. And um, it's, you know, I, I, I can't, I can't even begin to describe how amazing it is and all the, um, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands or millions of lives he is responsible for saving by having done that. And I think that um, another administration probably would not have gone all in for that. Um, and I think that it was, you know, completely 100% he gets credit for that. Um, in bureaucracy also. His, his, his administration um, was not able to manage a lot of the other things that were critical, um, including building distribution for the vaccines. Um, that was not planned out. The Biden administration came in and managed to do the distribution. It wouldn't have mattered if they didn't have vaccines, but they got that right. It was critical. It was very important. Um, and other than that, I think um, the Biden administration has had very, very little ability to change the public discourse or impose rules about almost anything um, for reasons that Benny was talking about at the beginning, like, you know, Americans aren't interested in the same type of thing. So I think that there's, um, there's a limited amount that could have been expected 
um, for him to do that. I think that, um, you know, there are things that he's doing well, there are things, but I, I don't think there's anything that you can say, like, he got everything right about how to respond, especially because he came in so late in the game. Um, but, you know, Trump should get credit for funding the vaccines and Biden really should get almost all of the credit for getting the distribution to happen pretty well. Um, that's, that's the US. In Israel, I'll say um, clearly um, Netanyahu should get all of the credit for buying the vaccines very early and pushing for that to happen. Um, yes, I think that- uh, If, if there's Israel, anything else. I think that in Israel, the, um, it's very, very early to, to make a judgment about uh, the new government. Uh, they, uh, even, even the story of the Delta variant that came to Israel to, to start to judge the way that the new government is doing it, uh, they are still, they're still in, the, in the learning curve. You can't really, you can't really uh, make uh, such, a, such a conclusion. And uh, I'm pretty much agree with David. Uh, as a matter of fact, Trump did another thing, something else. He also cut the bureaucracy. I still remember uh, in the last, like the last few days of approval of the vaccine, uh, he, he came to the FDA and told them, stop playing around with bureaucracy, yes or not, and, and go, go, go for it and I give you 24 hours. That is something that it's absolutely an unusual thing with the FDA. Um, and talking about the distribution, um, I'll put it this way. Uh, a, for sure, Trump and his administration uh, brought uh, like a, a, a new wave and a new approach. And, and I think that a very positive one, but I think that he had already quite a bit the this distribution uh, a plan and system uh, uh, set up for uh, when, he, when he came into the office. I mean, Trump was not, uh, not in, in, you know, in the mood of uh, forcing people to vaccinate, but it's not that he was anti. Um, so I, I'll say on, on the pushing to reduce regulation, you're right, he did push to reduce regulation. Um, my, only, my only disappointment there is that when he came into office, it was one of the places that he said he was going to reduce regulation a tremendous amount. Um, and it took till the very end for him to actually manage to push them on this. I, I was disappointed in how little he deregulated the FDA. Um, he should get credit for pushing them to um, go faster on some of these things. Um, I will go ahead. I, I, yeah. No, no, go yeah. ahead. I don't want I, to interrupt just, your train I, of thought. I, I was going to change something. Well, I, I was, I was gonna, I was gonna move over to Israel, um, where I think um, the the only thing I would add to those thoughts is um, the last time I was on the podcast, I pointed out that um, in some ways the biggest problem that um, Israel had was when you have a government, the, um, there's political pressure to do things. Um, and when the health ministry is in charge, they just make the public health decisions. And when people say, but like, but shouldn't we reopen? And do we, do we really need whatever? They're like, we don't care. We're, we're doing what we think is the best decision. And they don't, they, they don't respond to political pressure in the same way. Um, and I think that um, not because of BB in any way, particularly just like when you have a political government, then there's, there are different kinds of pressure that make it harder. Um, I don't know how that is playing out now. 
one of the things that we that that I've noticed, and I think that is you know is, is talked about uh, a lot here in the states, at least, is that in the early stages of the pandemic, you could because of Trump's positions on things, and particularly on China, it was politically incorrect in many circles to come out and question the origins of the virus being anything other than the accepted narrative of coming from a bat in the Wuhan wet market that was infected by eating a pangolin a thousand miles away and not acknowledging the fact of the Wuhan Institute of Virology being literally three blocks down the street. And now that Biden has taken over, there's more of a legitimacy to question that in, in public or for the mainstream media to talk about it or for people to talk about it at home or in social circles. Uh, I'm just curious from both a catastrophic risk prevention uh, perspective and from a medical perspective, uh, does it matter that we don't have clarity on that now? Uh, and, and where might we be if 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 we did? Uh, and 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 we we also had a guest on the show, uh, Sarah Wilf, who Dan will remind me the name of of his his organization. Root, root claim. He has a company called Root Claim that uses advanced mathematical probabilities to determine the origins or you know, of different okay. world events. Right. So we, we talked about origin of, of COVID with him. Uh, I think it was last, correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, maybe last December or November. Uh, and it was clear to, to root claim that it was, that it was a lab leak uh, and, and not inadvertent, an, he said inadvertent lab leak. Uh, so now that we're, you know, a year and a half into this, what, what are your thoughts on that gentleman? Um, yeah, maybe maybe you can go first. I have I have uh, plenty to say about this, but I need to plug in the computer. <laughs> you know what? Um, it's very interesting. Um, since for a very long time, I'm interested, you know, in uh, in uh, epidemics and things like that. So I used to get uh, the CDC uh, um, uh, notes, like uh, uh, bulletin notes, all the time, and I think that I was one of the one of the very, very few people in Israel at the beginning that heard about this uh, uh, very strange uh, uh, virus that goes in China and, uh, and that, the that the Chinese already are very much in alert and everything. Um, I don't know how much it was going to make a different or it's going to make a different if we'll know that it leaked from uh, uh, a lab or it, it's a kind of a natural uh, virus. Uh, we know that, uh, that we are humans and uh, humans make mistakes and labs are tending also to make mistakes. So it can happen, if not in China, it can happen in the States, in Port Lead uh, or Mid or somewhere else that uh, they are dealing with viruses. And we, we know that they were leaking also before. Um, the question is how you are, how you are reacting. Um, and if there is something that we, I, that I think that we can really say about the Chinese that they didn't react well was to, to, to be, uh, uh, to be uh, honest enough to, uh, to um, spread the news as fast as is possible to, uh, to their medical colleagues all around the world uh, that that the world uh, will be able to uh, to respond, and that they didn't close also the, their borders in the right time. Uh, I mean, you were talking before about, for example, about Iran. The Iranians uh, had flights to uh, Wuhan 
on a daily basis for a month after it, uh, it was still already in a, in a shutdown. Um, they didn't really give a damn about the whole world. That, that's, that's my conclusion. If you, if you really want to contain, to contain such a leak, le leak, you need to be see-through, you need, to, you, you need to, to be honest and to, and to give all the information as much as, as much fast as it's possible to your colleagues. Yeah. So I guess I'll, I'll start with um, root claims analysis um, tries to do something. I, I, I think that it gets several details importantly wrong. Um, I think that it's overconfident in its conclusion. Um, and um, there's, we, we're never, there's one way that we could know what it is that, that happened um, with the origin of the virus. And that is at some point we could find the natural origin, um, the, the kind of reservoir in nature and we'd be able to look at that population and find the kind of related viruses. And there are ways that we could conclusively prove that this was natural origin. Um, if that data is available, um, China would really like to be able to talk about it, presumably. Um, and they either haven't looked very hard, even though it seems like a super important thing for them to have wanted to look for, um, or they've looked really hard and they haven't found it. Um, so that seems like really pretty strong evidence that like, if there was a natural origin, then you know it's it's they're not finding it. Um, and on the other side, if it was a lab leak, intentional or not, um, I'm effectively certain that um, anybody who um, could give any details about this um, is either a senior person in the um, Chinese Communist Party or is no longer with us. Yeah. Um, just or has mysteriously that, you know, so I, I I think uh, yeah that's that's a generous way of putting it um, so I, I think I think that that said um, laboratory safety is a big deal I have um, been talking about this and, and thinking about this since um, before a, a while before COVID um, and um, I could talk a lot more about that um, but. Um, yeah, we, we need more transparency. Science is based on transparency. Um, it would be wonderful if people were as transparent about their mistakes as they were about their successes. Um, I think that it's critical. I think that um, this, this isn't just a safety issue. This is a kind of basic, um, you know, kind of what we should expect from our scientific institutions um, and, and uh in Israel, there are some guidelines for reporting laboratory-acquired infections. Um, in the U.S., there are some; they can be strengthened. But but th there are kind of some guidelines around this that should absolutely be strengthened. Um, a number of people have asked, you know, does it make a difference? Um, and the answer is, for COVID, not in any significant way. Um, but more generally, does it make a difference? At this point, kind of not, because um, we know that it's very, very plausible that it came from a lab, and that's enough to tell us that we should take this super seriously. Um, and if it 
ended up actually coming from a lab, that conclusion shouldn't change. And if it ended up not coming from a lab, that conclusion still shouldn't change. If, it's, if this is a plausible route, and, and we've said that it is for a long time, um, if this is a plausible route to a pandemic, we should be really careful about it. Does that mean stopping gain-of-function research in labs as a method to develop? Research. Yeah, gain-of-function research refers to a lot of different things. Right. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not like across the board, anything that could be called gain-of-function is necessarily dangerous. Um, but um, I think the bar, well, you look, there, when, when, when the debates about resuming gain-of-function research in the U.S. were happening, um, when the original debates about stopping gain-of-function research were happening, um, a number of labs said, look, our lab is safe. We don't have accidents. Um, and I don't know, um, you guys may not remember um, back when you were in college, um, but there are college students working in these labs. Um, and if you believe that nobody has ever done something stupid in one of these labs or dropped something or tripped, you're crazy. Right. Like, and, and, and if you talk to people who work in, in labs like this, they have stories about what, you know, the, the, the funny slash terrifying things that have happened in labs that like were working with kind of dangerous organisms. Um, yeah, I, I, there's, the bar for doing research on things that have this kind of risk should be much, much, much higher. Um, that's not to say nobody should ever do research on Ebola, um, but you know, when, when people talk about, um, oh, well, we're doing research on um, anthrax, and the question is, could, could you do it with a different, um, uh, spore um, that like is very closely related but doesn't kill people um, and their answer is oh maybe but it'd be harder to publish there's something deeply unethical about doing the research on something that's more dangerous because it's easier to publish your results nature yeah. in the modern world and on well, that I want to I want to wrap this up with a light question but <laughs> As, as, as with our previous episode, that's proving difficult to do. Uh, so, so maybe I'll just ask uh, of bo both of you, um, you know, as, as we are, and as I, you know, look at, look at the world outside me here in America, and as we experienced in Israel over the last year, you know, you know, things gradually opening up to a place where we feel more confident in our ability to live normal lives. You know, how optimistic do you both remain and, uh, and what predictions do you have maybe in store for us in Israel uh, and in the States in the year to come? Techno-optimistic. Yes. Who wants to jump um, in? I, I guess I'm up first. Go yeah. for it. Um, so I, I, I will say, I will say um, over the, maybe not the next year, but over the next um, five to 10 years, um, the, the good news is um, I think you know, as, as a um, kind of reaction to COVID, um, we will never have a period of time where people are as reasonably cautious about emerging diseases and as willing to react to make sure that this doesn't happen again as we will over the next five to 10 years. Um, so, you know, I, I, not that this isn't still a risk, but I think that we're, we're in a great situation um, for at least a little bit, 
um, in terms of dealing with that. And I think we're in a great position in terms of um, investing and in making sure that we're better prepared for next time, at least for the next five to 10 years. Um, over the next year, I think people are continuing to get more used to the fact that COVID is not gone as a risk um, and people will continue to um, deal with that. I think that we'll continue to push to get people um, vaccinated. Um, somebody mentioned before that we should talk about whether we should be vaccinating children. And the answer, the responsible scientific answer is uh, we need to wait until um, there are comprehensive test results. And my personal response is, are you kidding me? Why are we not vaccinating children? Um, but that's a separate discussion. Could, I, I think that- we're, we're, your, David, if you could vaccinate your young children today, would you? Yeah, no, no question. Um, but um, I, I will say the, the, um, the next piece is um, we're going to get the evidence pretty soon. The studies are ongoing. We're going to find out, you know, kids six and up and people are going to start vaccinating them. And um, we're going to get to the point where uh, Israel will have near complete herd immunity um, and we'll continue to see variants. But I think that, um, you know, the risk is so much lower and we'll continue to be there that we'll get used to it um, and the world will move on. Um, I would say that I'm pretty much optimistic. Uh, first of all, we, we, had, we had the vaccine that created already uh, in the States, in Israel, in a lot of the Western world, uh, I'm ready to fund the foundament, uh, foundations of, uh, of immune, uh, of uh, herd immunity. And, uh, and uh, I don't, even though there are all the time variants, it's still Corona and, and still there is going to be at least a partial immunity, even from the very, very basic, basic uh, uh, immunity vaccine. Um, but my optimism, it's uh, something else. I see in a matter of a few months, that's my opinion, that we are going to have a few medicines that mm -hmm. are, that are, a, that are pretty, pretty good on uh, taking care of uh, the, um, the severe cases of, uh, of Corona, maybe even preventing people to reach to the stage of severe cases. There is at least one Israeli company that, uh, that had uh, a drug uh, dealing about it. Um, there is, we didn't mention anything about uh, what we call the long hours of the Corona. The, all, the, all those that well, suffer from the long COVID. And uh, this is also something that is being addressed and they're trying to, to find some medica medications to treat it. One thing for sure, uh, the corona taught us that uh, uh, humanity, when we are making a decision about reaching a target uh, and we are gathering forces from all around the world and we're spending the money, we're succeeding to reach tremendous amount of, uh, of, uh, of advance in a very, very short, uh, short time. Uh, by the way, some of the medications that they're talking about now are going to be uh, good for some other viruses like AIDS. Some, some of them are going to be uh, very good even for treating different types of cancer. So probably in a matter of a year, a few, you know what, I, I won't be so much optimistic, but a few years from now, we are going to look at this year as first of all, as a year that uh, all of us were 
in a kind of a jail <laughs> yeah. nuts uh, in that house, but that it, it also gave a, a, a tremendous amount of forward step to, uh, to science and to, uh, and to uh, the public health uh, when we're looking at it in the long range. Fantastic. Um, that certainly is a more optimistic note to, uh, to wrap up Absolutely. with what could often Most be definitely. a conversation. <laughs> Definitely, definitely. So guys, thank you very much for joining us. Always a pleasure, David. Uh, very, very, very uh, great to meet you, uh, Rami. Uh, and look, from your, from, from your lips to God's ears, as they say, we hope that everything turns out for the best as quickly as possible. So uh, when, we're, when we're having another uh, repeat episode a year from now on <laughs> episode 104, uh, we'll, we'll be in a whole other place. And then we can start talking about other catastrophic risks that freak people out, David. Not about covid no, yeah, you're from now. Not about COVID. Not about COVID. We, we, we should talk, be done with this. Let's, let's talk about super retrospective. We'll talk, we can do a retrospective volcano in Israel. Yeah. yeah, we'll talk about super volcanoes. We can talk about uh, you know aliens. We can talk about all kinds of Not other the stuff. Apocalypse. Rogue AI. <laughs> AI, yeah. of course. Yeah, we should have an AI episode. All right, guys. Thank you um, so much for joining us. Okay. And thanks Thank everyone. Out, us. Thanks everyone out there for listening to. Episode, you said 52? 52. 52 of Juanced, and uh, we, we're going to have to celebrate the next one. Next time you're going to be here in Israel, and I'm going to be in the United States. That, that's right. Juanced. So we'll, we'll have to reverse the uh, the trends here. Um, so thank you guys for joining. Thanks all the listeners out there. Benny, have a safe flight back. And you have a safe flight here. Thank you very much. And we will see you all next time on Juanced. Bye-bye, guys. Bye. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.